curiosity of how products were made it really fascinated me and in that time that's when I manufactured designed developed sourced over two and a half thousand products visited more than 500 factories how can people protect themselves when they're innovating a product so that these Chinese factories don't go and steal all their intellectual property and just go and use it wherever they want if I ask for a lower price it's not yeah I want to make more margin more money it's I'm going to charge my customers lower I'm going to sell more units I sell more units you get more orders a lot of people use influencers to promote their products but if you involve the influencer in the product development stage they're way more likely to promote it you have to be very very self-aware of how good is your innovation because a lot of people just take something that's already selling and they make it a little bit lighter or a little bit thicker or change the pattern and they're like oh someone better not copy my idea or in china do they not have like underage like child labor in factories and sweatshops and all that sort of stuff i'm like absolutely not talked about where you have passion but also where do you have influence how do you figure out what's your strategy what do you stand for and that comes down to what your core values as a brand what are these brands still getting wrong at scale first things first guys before we get started with this podcast do me a solid favor and subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now whether that's youtube spotify apple podcasts i'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button and it lets me know that the content that i'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time much love This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremover.com. Welcome back to the Frankie D podcast, coming to you live from the UK. Guys, I have done you an absolute solid favor today. I have got the man, Kian Golzari, who has sourced products for none other than the NBA, the Olympics, all the top e-commerce brands across the world. This man has been in over 500 factories and he's the one of the biggest wizards that I know when it comes to sourcing products. Mate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Frankie. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Mate, it's, I've dragged I've dragged him into the ends of, of Peterborough from London today. He's only here for, how long have you been here for? Like five days or something? Yeah, just here for a few days, yeah. Quick, quick one, but I've dragged you here. But mate, I think, um, I think we should go into a bit of a backstory for you because obviously you started sourcing products for your family's business back in Edinburgh when you when you started so yeah. give it give for the audience that, that don't know you give give a bit of an insight into how you got into sourcing products yeah for sure I was very lucky to how I fell into it because my dad started off the family business which is called Highlander Outdoors a camping and outdoor brand uh, in Scotland and I was kind of like from a young age I kind of saw my dad going to China and he would like bring all these like weird gifts back home from China and I was always curious like you know what goes on in China and when I graduated university my dad said hey do you want to come with me and I'll show you the factories and show you how we source products and stuff like that I was like yeah absolutely and what was supposed to be like a two-week trip I ended up staying for three months uh, set up an office there absolutely loved it went back to Scotland got all my things and then moved to China and in that time that's when I manufactured designed developed sourced over two and a half thousand products visited more than 500 factories and just the curiosity of how products were made it really fascinated me so I was very very lucky that I found my passion at a young age and like I'll give you a quick example like my favorite product source is a backpack. And before I ever went into a factory, I just thought of a backpack as one piece in a store on a shelf. But when you see it in a factory, you see it in like 30 different pieces, like the shoulder straps, the foam that goes in the shoulder straps, the webbing, the buckles, the zippers, the pullers, the inside lining, the waterproof coating. And you see it at every stage of production. And now all of a sudden, when I think of a backpack, I think of it in like 30 different units. 
30 different pieces. So if I've got like a $15 product and I want to make it a $12 product, I've got 30 different places I can go to in my head in terms of how do I make this product cheaper? Or if I want to improve the quality, I've got 30 different places I can go to in my head. And you can't really think like that until you go into a factory. But then going into 500 factories and learning how products are made, um, it really just blew my mind. And a lot of people say like, how are you able to source for the NBA, the Olympics, all these different retailers, and it comes down to the common denominator of if you can supply the best product at the best quality, at the best price from the best factory, you can supply anyone you want. And I've supplied like a lot of retailers in the UK, like Argos, Tesco, Sainsbury's, done a lot of private label brands for those guys. And it doesn't really matter if it's high-end or budget products. If you understand how products are made and you can deliver at the best price and the best quality, you can supply anyone you want. And that's really what I want to help today give actionable advice to anyone who's got an e-com business can source better products after listening to this episode i love it mate i love it because when you the way, what you just said there is essentially so true because i've never i've never thought about how a product is is made and the intricacies of how many components there are even if you look at an apple product and you see all the components for those products that are put together in one factory come from different different suppliers and different things so they've all been sourced by their internal team essentially but what are some of the key things where people go wrong when it comes to sourcing of, of the products and sourcing of the components that make their products. Sure. I mean, I think everyone's go-to is that when they want to source something, they go to alibaba.com and they just type in a product, let's say blue light blocking glasses, and they see all these images of products and they see like 70 cent, $2.50, $8, $12, $5, and they kind of just, they all look the same. They're tempted to go for the cheapest one and then they order a product, they have quality issues and they don't know what's going on. But I always say on alibaba.com, that's a great starting point. You have very good suppliers there and you have very bad suppliers and your job is to filter out to find the best manufacturers. And just for quick tips for anyone, if you want to source the best products online, you would go to a website like alibaba.com, but rather than searching by price, you can also search by manufacturers. And I search by manufacturers and I type in a product that I'm looking for and I set my criteria of what I'm looking for. So I would say, right, must be a verified factory, meaning like all the information that they say is true. So if they say they've been in business for 25 years, that they've got 50 sewing machines, that they've got 2,000 workers in the factory, that's been verified by a third party. And I'm also going to select trade assurance, meaning anything that, um, any payment I make to that factory, it's protected by Alibaba. So if I ask for blue light blocking glasses with a black frame and I get a red frame, I get that refunded. And then I would look into number of years that factory's been in business, has to be like at least 10 location that factory is based is it in the area which specializes in that product certifications do they have the right certifications so i've basically like narrowed down my criteria of here's the best factories to work with and once i've selected the best factories that's when i'm going to negotiate the price down whereas people normally just get attracted to the cheapest price and then they get terrible quality they don't do their inspections they don't get proper sampling and then they, they find out about all the faults with their product once they get returns from their customers but if they actually just followed this process at the start to begin with they would have had a very high quality supplier from day one but that's essentially how to find the right supplier once you found a supplier you've got a whole nother job in terms of like how do you make them want to work with you because you you might find a supplier that manufactures for the north face or nike or someone like that or gymshark and then you're like well i'm just starting my like gymwear brand my first order is like 300 pieces why would these guys want to work with me so you have to then like build leverage with those suppliers to make them want to work with you and that's all in your communication so these suppliers get like 100 messages a week to be like, hey, what's your best price? What's your MOQ? Can I get customized packaging? And all that sort of stuff. And those, all those inquiries just go to the bottom of the pile. But if you reach out and you say, hey, I'm a fitness enthusiast. I've got this um, social media channels, which I've got over 50,000 followers, either through my own network or through influencers that I know myself. I've got my own studio. We're going to be filming content. We've got aspirations to grow the brand like this. 
Um, we want to develop new products in this space. We feel like we can innovate in this regard. They're like, wow, this is a customer I want to work with. This is someone which is knowledgeable at a product, has an audience, wants to develop products for the long term. And then I would look at their factory information and say, I've selected to work with you because you've been established for more than 10 years. Quality standards is a very high value for us. And it's good that you have that as well. I can also see that you have these certifications. This is sustainability stuff. So you care about the environment and all that. These are the types of things that we want to work on as well so I'm kind of saying why they should work with me and why I want to work with them and I'm sort of building that relationship from day one rather than hey what's your best price and now they're incentivized because a supplier's not thinking how much money am I going to make from this order they're thinking how much money am I going to make from this customer over the next three five ten years yeah and if you paint this picture of long-term partnership we're building something we've got influencers in the space they're like cool this is someone I can build with but if you're just like hey I want your cheapest price they're just they're not interested to work with you so We've selected the best supplier, then we've sort of built our leverage to make them want to work with us. And then from there, we can go on and develop really good products. I lo- I, yeah, I like the way you've broken that down because essentially, I think a lot of us, you know, when we first go into bringing products over, I mean, I remember years ago, I brought some before the high, well, when the high smiles of the world were in their early days and I was, I didn't know the boys at all and it was like five, six, seven years ago and I was just a carpenter joiner on tools. I was like, right, teeth whitening seems popular. So I went on there and I ordered a thousand teeth whiteners at $3 a pop and I didn't know anything about it. I just thought I'll buy them for free and I'll sell them for 15 and I'll sell them on whatever, Facebook, eBay, this, that and the other. I've, I've, I've since given them all to my mate because I didn't sell any of them. I did, ended up giving them away. But, you know, you kind of, all I went for at that time because I had no knowledge was like cheapest price, quickest possible delivery time, all that kind of stuff. Is Do, do, you, do you kind of think then that you kind of have to... Like, how are you know how how do you even know what kind of product you should start with if you if you're just getting new into this e-commerce space? Like, because a lot of I think a lot of people, including myself, we we just go like I like I went with that teeth whitening product. I just go, oh yeah, I'll, I'll just do that because someone else is doing that. How do how are you aligning what you want and everything like that? I think you have to make the decision at the start. Am I branding or am I selling? So, for example, a lot of people a lot of people make money online just by selling random products. They're successful at it, and they're like, cool. But they just find opportunities to sell the product, to make the money, and they move on to the next thing. Some people like to build a brand, something that they're really passionate about. Say, uh, I'm really passionate about podcasting. I want to build the next best podcast brand. I want to build the best mics, the best audio equipment, the best tripods, all that sort of stuff. Or if you love cats and dogs, you might want to develop the best toys for dogs or whatever it may be. So whatever you're passionate about, you because I feel like entrepreneurship is a very long and lonely game, right? So if you're going to be developing products, if you're going to be working till 2am most nights, you're going to be sacrificing your social life, it better be something on something that you actually enjoy. Because if it's something that you don't enjoy, someone else is going to beat you to it, right? But are there, but are there some products within that like that you'd stay away from? Because like me personally, I'd probably stay away from things that had like potential chemicals in them that could be toxic. So maybe I'd, even if I was a, a girl that liked tannin, I perhaps wouldn't bring in tannin lotion from a, sure. from china because i don't know what's gone into it and if if people start getting these rash ears and all this that and the other so yeah, yeah. there's all these things are there certain products you would bring in and certain you wouldn't predicated on different criteria what's what's the go with that for sure so i think like anything like cosmetic anything that you put like on your skin or in your mouth or it's like food products there's going to be so many different levels of certification and standards which you need to adhere to but even like electronics as well there's a lot of certifications required that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it 
but it means it's going to be a little bit more challenging and it which could also be a good thing because it means that there's more buyers to entry because less people are, are likely to come into that space but whatever space you do decide to go into the most important thing is to really align with what are the actual core competencies core standards for that particular product and you're not supposed to know all that but you can reach out to third-party quality control companies like intertech or sgs or anyone like that to say like hey i'm importing these power banks from china to the uk or to the us what are the legal requirements i need to comply with in order to import this product and they'll tell you you need to have this en4072 certificate you need to have that certificate and you would just send that back to your supplier to be like hey do you have the certification yes cool all right can you send me the report get it approved and you can work with that or if they might say, no, we don't have that, like, oh, are you capable of passing? Yep, we can de- do that. So you can start to have those conversations because you can sleep at night knowing that you've imported something that is compliant with the industry standard. Whereas if you're like, oh, I'm just going to do this like tanning lotion, but you've not got it tested, you might be causing a whole host of problems when that product actually gets imported. So you have to make sure. And even if it's something as simple as a backpack, there's no legal requirements you have to adhere to to bring in a backpack but i would still check to say what are the industry standards required to import this product and they might say look you want to test the zips ten thousand times you want to test the fabric doesn't break at this temperature you want to test that the waterproofness is this level and they have all those testing requirements for you and it's actually free to find out that information because they'll tell you here's everything you need to know or here's everything you need to do or comply with in order to import this product. But then when you do your testing for that, that's when they charge you. So it's kind of like free advice or free legal advice in terms of what you need to comply with. And then, sorry, the other part to your question was that like what product you should be importing. I think it's also, we talked about where you have passion, but also where do you have influence as well, right? Because I like that. I like that you've said that, yeah. Because where, where do you have your audience, right? What, why do they watch you? Like if you're like a basketball player, for example, then you could bring out like your own wristbands or headbands or something like that because that's something that they would wear while playing basketball. But if you bring out like an energy drink or let's say you bring out like something random like a, a baby blanket, but you're a basketball player, they're like, they're not really going to, they're not incentivized to buy that because that's not something that they would do. So it's what you're passionate about, where do you have influence? And also if it's just something completely unrelated, well, don't make it under your personal brand, create a new brand for that if you see an opportunity to sell that product. So when it comes to like brands currently that you see in the marketplace like the clothes like the big clothing brands like the like you know the the calming black blanket brands the 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 all the, all these brands that, that are created in the space there's a lot of brands that have popped up in the last say five six years especially on the on the back of instagram tiktok and everything like that what 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 is the even even though even though some of these brands are doing like five ten twenty twenty million what are these brands still getting wrong at scale I think, you know, what's really interesting is that, like, it doesn't... I used to, like, split up my content in terms of if you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, you should source this way. But what I realized was that, like, a lot of people are not doing it correctly, even the bigger guys, right? So, for example, I've got a friend who's doing $30 million a year in, like, the, the home bedding space, and, like, he'd never visited his factory before. And it's, like... Is and, that a cardinal sin? Yeah, I mean, it's, like, you will learn so much just from visiting your factory and learning how your products are made. And then, like, so, for example, he was getting a lot of, like, quality problems. And we when we went to his factory, we realized that the quality problems arose from his orders were so big that his factory couldn't handle his orders that they started to outsource his products to smaller factories. And the quality problems we're having at the smaller factories, which they weren't doing the inspections. And then he was getting random, like, returns here and there and just couldn't figure out where it was coming from. But having gone to the factory, it's like, well... If I'm giving you an order for 100,000 units a month, but you've only got 25 workers in the factory, it's impossible that this factory yes. can make all these goods. So I need to work for a bigger factory. So 
And obviously with like travel restrictions in China, a lot of people haven't been able to go to China in the last few years. But through apps like WeChat, it's like the Chinese WhatsApp, right? If you have a good relationship with your factory, I would send them pictures on WeChat in terms of like, here's what I'm having for my dinner, I'm out with my mates, here's what we're up to on the weekend, what are you guys doing? Did you have a nice Chinese New Year? What type of gifts did you get? How did you guys celebrate? And we're having this like social interaction back and forth. So but it's not, so, so you're actually making them feel and treating them like you would a normal human rather than treating them as just like oh you're the people that make my products exactly which is which is what a lot of people do to them exactly and as soon as you build that relationship you now have eyes and ears inside the factory so if i've got an order going out on the first of june i can help my factory at the end of may and say hey the goods should be almost complete now i'll give them a call on wechat video i'll be like can you take me down to the production floor can you can you show me all the boxes are packed can you show me all the goods are ready to go can you take out an item from box 13 and just show me what the packaging's like and if you're not able to go to the factory, you've got a video eyes and ears in the factory with the staff in the company because you've built up that relationship. Yeah. But if it's very transactional, like, hey, when are my goods arriving? What's the price of this? Why is it late? Why is this happening? It's like they don't necessarily want to engage with you, but as long as you build up that relationship. And then that's why it's important to visit if you can and like visit trade shows, visit the Canton Fair. They'll probably come and visit you. And I've even named one of my suppliers, like kids, but we're that close. You know what I mean? He asked me to name his child, his, his English name. And then like we go on holidays together. I've been to my supplier's wedding. They've visited Scotland. So <coughs> we have very, very good relationships, but it all came off like we're building a brand together. We're building products together because it has to be win-win. It has to be partnership. Like what's good. If I need credit terms because I've invested so much into like, you know, influencers and stuff like that, I can say to my supplier, hey, I need you to ship this order on credit and I'm going to pay you in 60 days. Or I'm supplying this particular retailer. This retailer, retailer wants 90 days credit off me. I need some credit off you in order to get this order. They're like, cool, done. So like, but you can't ask those things if you're just very transactional with your supplier and you haven't built up a relationship and you haven't gone to visit them and like you haven't sent gifts and stuff like that. It's it's win-win because if it's good for me, it's good for them. If I ask for a lower price, it's not, hey, I want to make more margin, more money. It's if you give me a lower price, I'm going to charge my customers lower. I'm going to sell more units. I sell more units. You get more orders. Everything has to be partnership, win-win, long-term collaboration. Yeah, and obviously, when you go to a factory that has like 25 staff, they can potentially grow their factory and grow the size of their business and manufacturing plant on the back of you being successful as well. So it's like you have to position yourself so that they can see that you're going to work with them long long term so they can obviously get something out of this themselves. Whereas I think we as humans, especially when it comes down to the Alibaba factories, we're, we're too transactional with them, aren't we? Yeah. And it was very interesting during COVID as well, because like there was a lot of challenges on supply chain, like shipping costs, like a shipping container went up from like $3,000 to $20,000. Factories were getting shut down because of lockdown, they had power outage situations, the China-Ukraine thing happened, caused a lot of pressure on raw materials of goods. And a lot of people were like, oh, um, China's too expensive now, I'm going to look at other countries, I'm going to look at USA, I'm going to look at Mexico and stuff like that, I'm going to look at... Bangladesh, Turkey, India, which is fine, but they all sort of came back to China because no other country in the world has got such a high number of skilled workers. Not only because there's low-cost labor in other countries, but China's got a very, very large workforce, an amazing infrastructure, but they've got a really high workforce of skilled labor, and they've invested so much in their tooling and their machinery, their mold costs, their ports, everything that really... It will get to a stage where we have to go to other parts of the world for our manufacturing. But right now, in this period of time, they are still by far the best. And a lot of people still associate China with like cheap goods and cheap labor, but it's really not. Like you can manufacture 
they will manufacture whatever you want. So if you want the highest quality, you can get it there. If you want the lowest price, you'll get it there. So it's really just based on what are the instructions that you give your factory is what you're going to get back. It's like chat GP, isn't it? Like you, you, you get, you get out of that what you, you know, if you can prompt it the best, you're going to get the best out of it. And with these Chinese factories and everything, if you prompt them in the right way, like if you tell them you want the quality and you're willing to pay the price to get the quality so that they can do it, they'll, they'll do it for you. Like you say, it's just, People aren't prompting them with the with the right questions, asking the right questions, going to the right factories. I know that on Alibaba, there's a lot of these cases where you'll think some place is a factory, but it's not actually a factory. It's just a um, trading company. Tra- yeah, trading company. And my mate was saying as well that um, who's who who does tens of millions in ecom that he was he was using, and I don't know whether you suggest this, but he was using multiple suppliers and multiple factories. But now he goes to even though he's got different brands, he sources from one um, central place and then they they get all the products. Is that is that something you'd advise or advise against? I think it depends on whether you enjoy the sourcing and if you're good at it or not because like his area of expertise might be like marketing or Facebook ads and he's like, you know what, I know how to sell products but I'm not necessarily the one to put all my time into like sourcing. Whereas I'm kind of the other way. I'm like, I just like to do the sourcing so I want to be very hands-on. I want to visit all my manufacturers. I want to see where to get their packaging from. I want to see where to get the raw materials from and I want to work for the best factories one-to-one. But let's say, for example, you've got like a fishing brand. You might go to a trading company and they'll do like the hooks, a fishing hat, like some accessories for the boat, just random products, but they'll go to different factories for you on your behalf and you only deal with one company. But that's easy or that's good for someone which doesn't want to talk to many people. But for me, like I want to see every single aspect of the supply chain. I want like vertical integration. I want to see where you get your materials from. How does it arrive? When does it arrive? Um, what other factories you're using? And then I'm really going to sort of get the absolute best price uh, and the best quality. So it's kind of if you want to get involved with it. And if you don't want to get involved at all, you can also hire like sourcing agencies and sourcing companies. But then you lose the relationships that we just talked about. But how do you f- how do you negotiate price fairly when you don't want to compromise the quality of the product that you're getting? That's a very good question, right? So a lot of people, I give the example at the start in terms of you go on Alibaba, you type in blue like blocking glasses and you see all these different prices, right? So how do you know what's the best price? Because yeah, you want to negotiate your price down. You might see a product for $8 and negotiate it down to 6 and you're like, oh great, I just got 25% off the product cost. But you didn't know the real price of that product was four, right? So, and you're still getting overcharged. So in order, how do you figure out what's the best price of the product before you negotiate? You have to develop what's called a specification sheet, right? So let's say, for example, we're going to do an outdoor furniture or camping chair, right? I would have to make a one-page PDF document. Like, this is the dimensions of the chair. This is the material of the chair. I need nylon fabric on the upper. It needs to be 40 by 80 centimeters. I need steel tubing. This is the thickness of the steel tubing. This is the packaging. This is the certification it needs to be comp- compliant with. This is Pantone colors. This is the logo. It's embroidery. It's three by six centimeters. And it's literally all the information of the product on one sheet up front. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to find the top five factories on Alibaba.com using that search method that, already, that we talked about. I'm going to find the top five factories. I'm not looking at by price. I'm looking at by are these the factories I want to align with. I'll look at what markets they're supplying, what certifications they have, what brands they supply. I'm like, okay, cool. These are the top factories. And then I send them all my specification sheet. They all got the exact same information. But I could have found those top five factories and then looked at their outdoor furniture chair and just said, how much for that? How much for that? And how much for that? But they're quoting on their existing product, not what I actually want. So you can't compare them. But when you send them all your specification sheet, 
you're now comparing apples with apples. So the prices you get back will be $7.80, $8, $8.10, $8.30, $7.90. So I'm like, okay, great. This product is around $8. But then if you get a quote for like $4.50, you know that price is too good to be true. You're going to have quality problems. And if you get a price for $12, you know that that supplier just wanted to add on a really high margin and that's not the real price for the product. But you know what is the market price by having a one-page spec sheet and then finding your top five factories, sending them all the same information, and then getting your quotes back. Once you get the quotes back, you figure out what's the market price, and then you can negotiate down from there. How do you develop that spec sheet so that it's watertight and you and to make sure that your 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 product and everything, the spec that you want it at, is 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 absolutely on the money? Yeah, yeah it's a great question. So, in terms of are you developing a product that you want to bring to the market, which has never been done before, which is innovation? Then if that product doesn't exist, then how do you share that information on the sheet, right? So you might get inspiration from competitors. You might go to Amazon.com, find like the top five products, and you're like, you know what? I really like the printing of that material. I really like that um, aluminium tubing, but it's got this like black coating on it. I really like the carry bag of that one. I've never seen that before. And you can take pictures of all these things. And I've made spec sheets before where I'm like, here's a picture of this, here's a picture of that. And it's like, it doesn't exist yet because it's not been done. And I just put all that information on the sheet, even if it's just images and annotations to that image to be like, must be like this, must be like that. But as long as you put what is the material. And if you're looking for inspiration for this product yet, and you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm not actually sure what I want yet. You can still go to like your retail stores, right? You could go to like a, a Halfords or an Argos or anywhere like that. And you can go into the retail store and, or like Cotswold, any outdoor shop. And you can talk to the guys which work there and say that, hey, can you show me the outdoor camping chairs that you sell? They're like, yeah, cool. Out of interest, you know, do you get a lot of returns for this particular product? Which one's the best seller? What do the customers like the most? You can get so much information from someone who works at a retail store because they're selling that product every single day and they're also dealing with the returns as well. And they can tell you, yeah, by the way, this one's performing really well. This pattern's really good. Or people send this one back because it's not waterproof enough. Or this one's always failing at um, at the thread, at the embroidery. Okay, cool. I'm making a note. I need to double stitch that. So you can learn a lot from just the retail stores and also just by reading the positive and negative reviews on Amazon as well. So, for example, you can type in outdoor furniture chair on Amazon and see that... Um, you can see you can see the design faults in other people's stuff by looking at the reviews and the, where people are complaining. Yeah, exactly. So you can read all the negative comments and I, what I do is I, I read the I, I make a likes and dislikes list so I read all the negative comments and I'm like right here's all the negative things have I solved for that yes and then I read all the positive comments as well what do people like about it and do I have that in my product yes I do or no I don't have, let me work on that so in a combination of developing a product that you're passionate on that you use yourself reading all the customers likes and dislikes on Amazon and talking to the retailers in the retail store you're now really well equipped to develop the next best version of this product because you've used you've developed all the information and it's very very important as well to get samples and use and test the samples yourself even if it's something as simple as like a coffee mug you have to drink like five cups of hot water out of it make sure that like you know the handle doesn't fall off the mug doesn't get too hot the paint doesn't chip if i drop it does it smash if it's like a sleeping bag you have to sleep in it if it's a backpack i have to hike in it you know what i mean i have to yeah. use it myself to make sure i'm happy with it before i put it out to the market and i'm also you can also get feedback from influencers as well because a lot of people use influencers to promote their product. But if you involve the influencer in the product development stage, they're way more likely and way more incentivized to promote it because they were involved in the product development process. Because they feel part of the journey. So, for example, you get that first sample. Let's say it's like a travel backpack, right? You reach out to the travel influencers and say, hey, 
Uh, I'm thinking about launching this product in the near future. I've developed it. You seem like an amazing person who would actually use this product as well. Before I launch it, I would love to send you a free copy of it, a free sample of it, and I would love to hear your feedback. And you send it out to them. You're like, you know what? This product was great, but the shoulder straps were a bit thin. I wish they were a little bit thicker, a little bit more padded, and I, I wish they were a little bit more curved. Noted. Thank you very much for that. Then you make those changes. And then when you work on some arrangement for them to promote it, they will say, hey, I was involved in the product development process of this uh, particular backpack. The shoulder straps uh, weren't thick enough. We improved that. And now they're way more incentivized rather than, hey, if you post this, I'll pay you that amount, if you know what I mean. So you're getting that influencer feedback. You're using it yourself. You're getting the feedback from retail stores and you're reading the positive and negative reviews uh, online as well. So you're very well equipped to then make that spec sheet to then send it out to the suppliers to then get the best price and then to get your sample. And it's just a case of like as getting as much detail as you can on your market and how that product is going to fit your market and serve your market as possible. But the one, the one key thing where a lot of brands struggle, and I had this conversation with the boys from Free Train the other day who came on the podcast. It'll probably be out by the time this one comes out. Um, before this one but the free train boys what they did was obviously they 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 invented this vest and this vest was to hold the phone so that they could look at so people could look at their phone whilst whilst they're running and type on their phone great product it's sold all over the world done 10 million in sales right unbelievable product but when they were taking when they were taking it to china to get it manufactured to get the neoprene and the phone case and everything they 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 thought if we show the chinese this uh these chinese factories um the, f- the full product and we go and say hey m- and we need a price on this spec of product they were worried that they would steal it and have it in production as fast as they can so yeah. how can people protect themselves when they're innovating a product or they're doing anything innovative innovative how can they protect themselves so that these chinese factories don't go and steal yeah. all their intellectual property and just go and use it wherever they want that's a great question. And, and I can tell that you're a very quality interviewer by the level of questions that you're asking, you know what I mean? So it's like, you're actually asking like all the best questions I've had to answer over the last few years. And um, so credit to you, man. These, are, these questions are great. Um, so in order to protect your best idea, your new product idea, right? Let's say, for example, you've invented the new electric toothbrush that now brushes your teeth on two rows. It's never been done before. And I'm, now we need to go find a supplier for this. But to your point, if we put this brand new product idea on a spec sheet and we have to send it to five different suppliers to get the price, I'm only going to work with one of them. So now those four suppliers I'm not going to work with now have my idea. So to prevent that from happening, I would... Um, uh, break the product down into what was the simplistic version of that product. So rather than saying this is the electric toothbrush which brushes your teeth on two rows, I'm going to just say I need a price and spec for an electric toothbrush. This is the material, this is the dimensions, this is the packaging, etc. And I'm going to find my top five suppliers, send them all the information, I'm going to get my samples, I'm going to see what's your communication like, certification, did it pass, everything. And now... I'm like, right, I got my samples from three. This is my favorite uh, sample. It's my favorite supplier. This is so the this is price. the generic product. So, you, yeah, so the, you're getting them to send you a generic product yeah. to start with. So th- this is a generic one. And I've basically selected, this is my favorite supplier. It's my favorite price, etc. And I've negotiated down. And I'm like, right, you're not a supplier I'm going to work with. Here's my product idea. So only the supplier I was going to work with now gets to see that idea. But to further protect that, because well, what if this supplier now runs with my idea? If it is, and this is the most important thing, you have to be very, very self-aware of how good is your innovation because a lot of people just take something that's already selling and they make it a little bit lighter or a little bit thicker or change the pattern and they're like, oh, someone better not copy my idea. But it's like, well, how did you get the idea for that product? You 
took someone else's concept and you improved slightly on it. So do you actually need to protect it if it's just a slight innovation? Yes or no. And if you do really want to protect it, then the best way to do it is to get a design or a utility patent, right? So you can get a design patent on the design of the product, meaning no one else can make that particular design. Or if it's the utility of the product, the feature, the function of the product, no one can do that. But these are costly. A design patent can be up to $4,000. A utility patent can be up to $15,000. But if you're like, I'm scared that someone's going to copy my idea, but I'm not willing to spend the $4,000 to protect the design. Well, then how sure were you on that actual product, right? But e- but even with these patents that you're talking about, right, the, the Troy Candy snorkel that he created... That was that snorkel. You put your beer, you put your bottle of beer in it, and then you turn it upside down. It's it snorkels down. He he created created a version of that. He didn't patent it. They they copied it. But even if he had patented it, I still think, and I've seen many products that that are patented, many football shirts that do have protection on them, copied worldwide. Mm-hmm. How is does a patent make any difference really? Because you can't enforce them in China, can you? No, but then those are just the people which are selling it in China, and like. I've had products that I've developed, a manufacturer has made it and they've sold it in China. And I kind of just take it as a compliment that I'm good at what I do if someone's copied my product and sold it. But I don't get pissed off because I was never going to sell that product in China anyway. But if someone takes that idea and sells it in the US or sells it in the UK or sells it in Europe, that's a big issue because those are markets that are actually sell in. So for you to have the design patent or the utility... It does patent, protect you in those markets. Yeah, and you can also get worldwide patents as well if you want to protect yourself in China as well. But once you have that patent, you can legally take those people off sale because they've infringed on your patent. And if you don't want to take them off sale, then you can claim royalties on their sales uh, if you want to allow them to continue selling. But that's a conversation you can have uh, with the infringer. So this ultimately gives you the protection of your product idea once you get that patent. How do you take someone off sale then? Have you ever had to do that yourself? Yeah. Um, so basically you just send them a legal letter. E- either you can phone them yourself and be like, hey, I have the patent for this product. This is a patent number. This is a copy of the patent. You're infringing it on this product you've, um, that you've brought out. So I ask you to legally take it off sale immediately. Um, and if, they're, if they ghost you, if they don't reply to you, then you can send them a letter from your lawyer and then they'll actually go after them to, to remove them from sale. Um, but quite often you can just come to agreements with them to have a licensing agreement because a lot of people don't actually know that they're infringing because like maybe they didn't do their due diligence before they launched this particular product. Maybe they saw it on a shelf, they bought it, they sent it to a factory, told them to order it, to tell them to make it. The factory didn't know that there was a patent on it and it's hit the market and they didn't know that they were infringing. But for you, you can actually take these guys off sale. But a quick tip or a quick hack, if like if you have a new product innovation and you're like, I want to make sure that my supplier doesn't copy me, and I want to make sure that the market doesn't copy me, but I don't want to pay the thousands of dollars on a patent, what you can write on the packaging or on a label on the product is you can write patent pending, meaning I've filed a patent, it's not come out yet, but if they look for the patent, they'll never find it because you never filed it, but because it says patent pending, they're now afraid to make that product because they don't want to make that product and then find out the patent gets released. So you can always just write patent pending, and then uh, people will be scared of uh, copying that product does that actually work yeah <laughs> so you see so you've literally used that to just protect it in the in the interim period and that actually flies yeah b- because there is actually like a one to two year period of when you file a patent to when it actually gets approved by the patent office so they tell you to put patent pending but sometimes you can just put patent pending on a product even though you haven't filed it and then if you, imagine if you like want to develop the next water bottle right and you pick up one in a store you're like you know what i like the look and shape of this i'm actually i'm going to make it like this and you see on the packaging it says patent pending you're gonna be like actually hold on a minute i'm not going to do that because i can't find the patent 
and uh, I don't want to make this because there's also like molding and tooling costs involved in the manufacturing as well, right? So let's say, for example, supplier tells you, all right, Frankie, you got to pay $5,000 to develop the mold of this product, but then you can see that there's a patent on it. You're like, well, I have to spend a lot of money to set up the production line for this, then fund the order. And then by the time I bring it out, someone's going to take me off sale because I've infringed their patent. So it's, it just creates barriers to entry. And the other thing is as well is that like a lot of these e-commerce brands, they make a lot of money from the sales of their products, but they also make a lot of money when they exit their business as well, right? Because this, they exit their businesses on four or five X multiple of their sales, right? But the businesses which get the really big exits are the ones which have product defensibility. So if you have a product that you've developed that had mold costs, which have got patents, which you sell in multiple markets, and you've got supplier agreements in place, they're way more incentivized to buy your business and pay you a higher multiple for it because it has defensibility. But if you're just doing solar eclipse glasses, why would anyone want to buy your business? They can just create that product themselves as well, right? So essentially, if you're going to spend the time going to China, getting a product, getting molds, you've got to have something that is defensible and has got a moat around it in order to be worth manufacturing and doing. How can clothing brands specifically build a moat around their hero products and and protect them yeah i I think with clothing it's very tricky right and for clothing brands to be successful it really comes down to their branding right and the the wants and needs of the customer like through social media and things like that whereas like because you can't patent a t-shirt right even a, a new design that comes out can get copied a new pattern that comes out can get copied so unless you're like a brand which people want to purchase because they like the feeling that they get from that brand that's when you have like defensibility and that can come in the form of um the people which wear that brand the packaging involved the community that you build who are the brand owners who who do they aspire to be like so that's how you sort of develop like defensibility in clothing but it's very very low barrier to entry for clothing because what i've done is what i've seen it done is um I saw I saw I think I think stacks have done this in in Australia. They created a um a fabric, well, or or patented or something a fabric called Nandex. And it's their own their own fabric that they use in their their black legging or whatever they use it in. And does does that give you defensibility in the marketplace? Does that build a moat around your hero product just by creating your own fabric for it and then patenting the fabric blend? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it can be the fabric or you could develop your own like camel pattern and you can develop, you can patent that pattern, but infringers can get very, very close to it without infringing. Right. So what's, so what's the margin? So what I want to understand is the margin of, of change that needs to happen in order for that to not be an infringement. I think in clothing it's, it's far too difficult not to, to basically to have defensibility in terms of someone infringing. Right. It, it really has to, defensibility has to come from the brand experience that like if you buy a t-shirt from nike or if you buy a plain black t-shirt you would always take the 35 dollar nike t-shirt over the five dollar plain t-shirt because of the feeling that you get from wearing that brand so that that's your defensibility but you you raised a really good point in terms of the materials right and i think that within clothing there's a very good opportunity of where can you use materials of clothing and put it into a new product product category there's a really good book called blue ocean strategy i love it mate i yeah. love it it's and, great and it's something that's typical blue ocean and i just saw kevin hart do this right so kevin hart's got his brand called fabletics right and he's got like active wear like a gymshark type clothing brand but he um he developed developed fabletics scrubs right so you know like the the hospital gear and gowns that, that they wear in the hospital right well it's very old traditional it's not been innovated for a long time 
people are on their feet all day they need to be comfortable so he used the sort of active wear spandex like nylon elastane stretch breathable um material on scrubs and now that's blowing up and he just took an existing product material in athletic wear applied it to hospitals and now his customers it's anyone who works in the hospital which is millions of people right so he just took a concept that works somewhere else applied it into a new product category and it's booming do you think then brands like stacks the couture club um desview gym sharks um free train and all like the clothing brands like those e-commerce clothing brands do you think that then that they to get another defensible moat around their business that they should potentially look at pivoting into some of those older things untapped and start making clothing towards those those untapped areas is that kind of how you see that brands should start pivoting yeah definitely and and also like i look i like to look at the market leaders as well right like i look at nike and north face and the thing that's really inspiring about them is that they constantly innovate. Like Nike constantly bring out the new basketball shoe for LeBron James or the new like yoga garments. And they always have these new materials, new stretch materials, new sustainable materials come from recycled polyester, from plastic bottles that were taken out of the ocean. So there's always like a story behind it. Even um, Patagonia, the outdoor brand, right? Yeah. If they're the most sustainable brand that I know. And if you go on the Patagonia website, they're very, very uh, transparent with their sustainability. So they've made um, swimming shorts out of uh, uh, fishing ropes, which are pulled out of the ocean. So you'll see a video on their website of them pulling out ropes, cutting them, shredding them, melting them, uh, turning them into plastic pellets, melting them, turning them into polyester yarns, and then, turn, and then printing on that polyester yarn, turning it into swimming shorts. And they're actually showing you how they took out nets from the ocean, and now that's the swimming shorts that you wear today. And that is, that's a story. That is something that not the ordinary person from the street could go and copy that, right? So that's creating a brand experience. That's creating something that of, of innovation, of defensibility. But it's, all, at the end of the day, swimming shorts. So... Do you think then a lot of the brands at the moment are struggling to... Because there's a lot of same, same stories in the market, isn't there, when you look at clothing brands. I'm just picking on clothing brands specifically because it's what most people can resonate with. But with these clothing brands, do you think then that they need to create more of these these feel-good stories and this, that, and the other? Like, is, is that something that you see sets them apart and, and that isn't done enough in the marketplace from your experience? Yeah, I think it goes a long way. And it's like, what is the feeling that I get when I wear that brand, right? And I know for myself, the brands that I wear, when I put on that particular brand, it gives me a certain feeling right so right now i'm wearing an ovo hoodie i love drake it's my favorite artist right so when i wear this drake hoodie i don't know i paid like 150 dollars for this i could probably got this hoodie plain for a third of the price but i chose to pay 3x the price because it made me feel in lack of a better words like drake right and then i've got like these represent trousers on and it's like i love what they stand for as a brand yeah. so i'm willing to pay however much these trousers are because of that feeling that it gives me and if you're just sort of selling clothing without creating any emotion or feeling then you're just in the red ocean and you're competing with everyone on margins and you're just it's a race to the bottom in terms of price but when you give a certain feeling for your product you can charge what you like or what your consumer is willing to pay for that feeling what are some of some give me some other examples of feelings that you see that have been created really well in the marketplace well for example like i played a lot of basketball growing up right and basketball shoes is a, a great example in terms of like you could pay like $250 for a pair of Jordan basketball shoes or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James basketball shoes. But <coughs> the quality of those shoes is actually the exact same as the $80 shoes that you would get in Foot Locker. But you want to buy that one, which is 3x the price because of that particular favorite player. And there's no way, there's absolutely no chance that by wearing that player's shoes, you're going to play like that particular player. 
But that's the feeling that you get. It's the same reason Nike pay Mbappe and Ronaldo all this money, same way uh, Neymar's getting paid off Puma and Messi off Adidas because people want to feel like that player by wearing their boots. But you could also get a pair of $80 Adidas boots, but the, you get the Messi ones because you want to feel like the World Cup winner. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting how you, how you can create, a, create that feeling within someone just by, you know... By law of association, essentially to assent, like to to someone they look up to, mm-hmm. and I think it's very important that you know what you what you're saying there about building a defensible moat around these brands. I I still see a lot of brands that are built, and I'm like, there's not they've got like a hero product that stood out, and they've sold loads of them, and then they pivot into into some other business, but there's there's no defensibility about it, and and that's kind of that's where a lot of brands are left ultimately weak is when they've got this lack of Lack of moat around their business. Yeah, and you you could look at other categories as well. You could look at Elon Musk, right? Like loads of other car companies have got electric cars, but Tesla is soaring because he is essentially the figurehead, and people aspire to be like him and want to be like him. Therefore, they like to buy his electric vehicle. So a lot of other categories are sort of uh, a lot of other categories of products are purchased based on the feeling that they get from the founder, from the owner, from that particular brand through the social media strategy. And, and, it, and it works so really like you have to figure out what's your strategy what do you stand for and that comes down to what are your core values as a brand right is your values around sustainability cool well let's be transparent about our supply chain and how products are made are we are our core value lowest possible price like Primark well let's give people the lowest possible price and that's why they're going to come to our store how, how did you figure out your values um, so you've got your personal values and, and your business values right and I would say that like your, your business values I've actually got a, a, a a video on my YouTube channel, Sourcing of Kian, in terms of like how to identify your core values. But it's basically what you stand for, what you believe in. And me personally, I believe in a loyalty, harmony, and high performance, uh, meaning that anything that I do or anything that I make has to be the absolute best quality. It has to perform at a really high level because that's what I stand so for. So you could, so if Tesco's came to you today and said, hey, can you, we, we just want to sell this this thing over here that normally retails at forty pound, that's really good quality. We want to sell it for a fiver, and we want to sell it. We yeah. we want you to source the cheapest, most obnoxious. It's got to work for three months, then break kind of stuff. But you wouldn't source that because it doesn't align with your values. Well, I've done that before. I've just never do it in my own brand. So, for example, I've been approached by retailers like the ones you just mentioned, and they're like, "Hey, we want to take this product, but we want to sell it. it typically selling for fifty pound. We want to sell it for twelve pound." How do we do that? And in my head, from the backpack story, I can make the calculations to bring it down to that low cost. I'm like, but by the way, to do it at this price, you're going to have to use the cheapest zips, the cheapest fabrics, the lesser materials, and it will break or tear after about nine months or a year. So let's just take example, like a kid's school bag. And they're like, well, that's okay because these kids only need it for one year. And then the next summer, they're going to buy a new bag, but we just need to give them the lowest cost product. So they will place a PO for like 100,000 pieces of a particular quality, of a particular price. Now, if the customer is asking for that, I will do what they ask for, but I would never put my own logo on it because for like my own brands, right, I okay. would make sure that it aligns with my values. Because that, because, because, so what, how did you, so you've, so you've got separate values then for business and personal. They, d- they don't quite align. Yeah, because it's essentially like you're now manufacturing for the values of your customer, not for, for you, essentially. like right. so, so for example, like I've got a family business, Highlander Outdoor, a camping and outdoor brand. So that's all about sustainability, high performance. Like you should build, you, you can buy a rucksack capable of climbing Mount Everest and this, and it's won a lot of awards and things like that. But that's going to be like a $200 rucksack, right? 
but <coughs> the same skills which I developed in order to develop that particular product can also be used to supply a retailer like Tesco, Argos, Sainsbury's, Aldi. And because they've got the volume, they can also get the lower prices as well. Yeah, I, 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 lo- I love the way that you've, you've separated it because then it still allows you to, to go and do revenue and go and make money and stuff like that. I think sometimes if you if you just go on your personal values like you say and and don't have the separate values then you, you're basically stopping yourself from doing business in so many different environments just with your own ego is it i won't do that because it doesn't align with me here yeah and and to your point though as well that you also have like personal values in terms of like it, it is funny because i get this question quite a lot in terms of like oh in china do they not have like underage like child labor and factories and sweatshops and all that sort of stuff i'm like absolutely not like i've visited more than 500 factories and i can tell you in those 500 i've only ever seen one factory which had a child worker in it and that child worker was the daughter of the mother which was working in that factory but didn't have anywhere to take her after school which is why she was there right so things like that a lot of people have these misconceptions but Things have improved so much in terms of like every factory to manufacture for a particular customer, whether it be like any retailer or anything like that, has to comply with these audits. And then these third party companies go into the factory, they check the books, like what time do the workers come in? What time do they leave? What type of dormitories do they have? What type of food do they get served? Do you have fire extinguishers? Do you have adequate lighting? And all that sort of stuff. Everything gets checked down to the T. So these are actually, and you know what's actually really crazy is that factory workers get paid more than what someone in Starbucks would get paid in China. Because what happened was that when I first went to China in 2010, right, it was like all the factories were on the port cities. So you would fly into like a Shanghai or somewhere like that and the factories are always nearby and they would be near the ports because that's obviously where they export the goods out. But as China went through this massive growth, what happened was the middle class developed, right? People started making money. And as you started to get more of a disposable income, they started to desire Western goods like KFC, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, uh, nightclubs, coffee shops, all that sort of stuff, right? So now the younger generation are like, well, why should I go work in a factory and work for 12 hours a day when I could work in a Starbucks, just make coffee and play on my phone all day? So now these younger workers, which were supposed to go into the factory, which is what was building their economy, now go into working in these sort of sectors for the middle class. And now the factories have to go more and more inland, more into the rural areas. So now when I go to China, I get off in Shanghai and I have to get on a four-hour train into the countryside. I'm in the rural um, areas and the challenge China has is they have now an aging workforce. So the people which work in the factories are the older generations and the younger generations aren't coming through to then work in the factories. So to get people to work in the factories, they have to pay them a much higher wage, right? So, so what's an average wage for a Chinese worker? In a factory worker, I would say something maybe like $1,200 a month, something like that. Um, that's that's not as bad as I thought it, you were going to say. Yeah. To be honest, that because you think you're thinking like one two dollars an hour type type thing yeah and but but uh, one thing i will say is they do work very very hard so they are working like 12 hour days they do work monday to saturday maybe only one day off and a lot of factory workers aren't actually from that area which um which their factory is like chinese new year um is the biggest people migration in the world over 100 million people travel in that time they take a month off because once chinese new year is finished they will go to work in let's say an electronic factory in the south of china in shenzhen and they work there all year for chinese new year they go home so you're actually a lot of the workers are in an area where it's not home and if you're like 35 years old and a mother with kids it's actually the grandparents which raise your kids and they're working in a factory and only get to see their kids for one month of the year when they go back home wow so it's definitely not an easy lifestyle and that's just like a, a generalization obviously there are like factories where they are in their hometowns and things like that but 
you have to travel for work and it's not like you just get on a train and travel back and forth like like we do from like london to peterborough yeah right? yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah it's not it's not it's not it doesn't sound easy at all they're traveling across the country so how can brands and how can people that bring products over from china better prepare for chinese new year and lead times on products because i think a lot of brands get this so wrong yeah 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 and you know i can tell you from like the 13 years that i've been like sourcing products from china whenever i've had a quality issue it's always been around a product which has been manufactured and shipped around chinese new year so i try to avoid that period as much as possible but chinese new year is about a one month holiday it follows the lunar calendar so the date isn't set every year it's not like new year's eve that we have so it's normally around end of january beginning of february and what happens is that for that one month like for the two weeks before Chinese New Year holiday, all the workers leave. And the two weeks after Chinese New Year holiday is when they slowly start to come back. But you only really bring back like maybe 40% of your workforce. So if you were working in that blue light blocking glasses factory, next year you might go work in a furniture, furniture chair factory, next year you might go work in a backpack factory. Which means that if you place any orders after Chinese New Year, there's a retraining time, a retraining process of if you now come to work in a backpack factory, but you've never made a backpack factory, <coughs> a backpack before, you now need to learn how to stitch that product, how to cut and sew that product. Or if you're now working um, in a lantern factory, now you need to figure out the electronics of how this lantern is like put together, right? So, right, yeah. And But the quality problem is that everyone's in a rush to get home for Chinese New Year because they've not been home in 11 months and they're desperate to get home. So they rush the orders because like they'll have a cutoff point of like no more orders after this day. After mid-December, we're not accepting any more orders. So when you've got these orders to finish and once they're finished, you go home, you rush them, right? So when you rush them, that's when mistakes happen. So that's why it's so, so important to do pre-shipment inspections before any of your goods actually ship out because if you're going to have quality problems, that inspection report will find it and you can fix it before the goods actually ship out. So... Are, are brands missing that missing that point? Are they are they not doing the pre inspection? Is that why the why it's happening? Yeah, and honestly, it's so good you mentioned that because I've been shocked by the big big brands that we all know that that I talk to, and they're like, we don't do pre shipment inspection reports. I'm like, oh, like I know, I know a lot of brands that are doing 60, 70 million. I know they're not doing pre inspection yeah. reports, and they might have done it once at the first order, but you know what? Those guys got it right, so it's fine. We don't need to do this every time. But the the cost of a pre shipment inspection report is two hundred dollars, but the value of that order might be a hundred thousand dollars. So wouldn't you rather for two hundred dollars find out that everything is fine with that production rather than ship it and find out you've got an issue with it, and now you have to either remove it from sale, send it back to China, fix it at a really high cost. So that pre shipment inspection report is so so important. But the Chinese New Year period, it's like, if you can avoid it, great. But the other thing is, if you have to manufacture product around time, then you have to do it. But the shipping products is really tough as well, because for one month, no one's at the ports to ship the products either. So you might have your goods ready, but then no one's there to ship it. So you have to plan your production schedule around Chinese New Year. The, the goods ship out before Chinese New Year. So how, percentage-wise, from your experience, what should you, they put? percentage-wise on each order to make sure that they're not left short when it comes to that time of year in terms of like yeah percentage of product like in terms of like do you add another 20 percent on on the on the last three orders before yeah. chinese new year or, or kind of what 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 have they got to do to make sure, sure that there's not this shortfall so they don't end up sending us an inferior product to their customers and ending up with the amazon getting smashed or yeah. Trust pilot getting absolutely whacked because you've sent out a load of leggings that have that have got holes in them. Yeah. Holes in them. Do you yeah, know what yeah. I'm saying? Like this. It, it, it depends on the seasonality of your product because, like, it, let's say for example, you're doing like winter gloves or whatever. Then they, you have to have them in stock for winter, meaning they have to be in there for October, meaning you had to ship them out by August or September, right? 
But if you're doing like an all year round product, you would just say, okay, well, we sell 12,000 units on average. We sell 1,000 units per month. Well, you know what? For that October shipment, let's send out three or 4,000 units so we're not stuck over that New Year period. And that's also um, when your shipping costs are going to be the highest as well because that's Q4 sales. And Q4 sales, you've got Black Friday, you've got Christmas, you've got the New Year period. That's when you get a lot of sales and big sales for brands, right? Which is where you're doing most of your sales, which means that's where a lot of your shipments are skyrocketing as well. So in general, Q4 is a period that you should be planning to not ship at that time. So how how can a brand just really get clear and dialed in so they're not, sh- they're not shipping as much product in Q4 where they're getting smacked on the shipping costs then. Yeah. So I, I think it comes from like experience in terms of like looking at your last year's sales and then forecasting and planning next year how to avoid that. But going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of having a good relationship with your manufacturer goes a long way. So for example, if I'm selling 12,000 units of a particular product, I might say to my manufacturer, look, I've got 12,000 units that I'm just going to manufacture all, all up at once upfront because I'm going to get that economies of scale in terms of like price. I'm going to get consistency of material. If you need to go and order black polyester material for this backpack, if you order it at 12,000 units rather than at 3,000 units, you're going to get a much better price, right? So I would say go and order all the materials for my forecast order for the year upfront. You don't have to manufacture the goods, but hold those raw materials in stock in your warehouse so that when I need to place an order, you can literally go straight to the warehouse, get the material cut and sew it and manufacture it. Or if you decide to manufacture all the goods, keep it in your warehouse and I will ship it out as and when I need it. But that only really happens when you've got a good relationship with your manufacturer. So I might have all my goods manufactured in the factory. And then when it comes to that busy period of, oh, I want to avoid the production around Chinese New Year. Well, the goods are already made because I had that forecast order because I had that relationship with the manufacturer and they agreed to hold all of that in storage for me. And you're not actually paying for those goods. You're not putting the cash up front because... You only pay for the goods once you ship them out. You might have paid a deposit on the materials, but that happened because you had a forecast, because you had a plan, because you talked about it with your manufacturer, because you went and visited them, because you got on a Zoom call with them, and you said, this is my plan for next year. You are my partner in this product. We're going to build this business together. And they're like, how can I support you? Hold these goods in stock and ship it out when I need it. Yeah. So I like that. The only, the only problem I see with that is happening is if you pay them that extra, say, 20%, which is the upfront on them making that product, and they say, oh, we've made the product, and they show you some footage of supposedly what seems to be your product and loads of boxes of it, but essentially they haven't made it. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you make, how do you, is, is, is that all down to just, re- is, you've just got to rely on the relationship? Well, it, it, it's trust and relationship, but we also, use, we also utilize those inspection companies, right? So if they say they've made it, like, okay, cool, I'm sending in my inspection company to check it out to pass and approve the goods. Right. And, then, and then they'll actually check out that they're actually there. Plus, we talked about the um, having those WeChat calls, having eyes and ear inside the factory. Once they make it, cool, can you send me the boxes? I need to see the videos. I need to upload it to my system. I need to show my staff. So you can get uh, all of that confirmation that they've made the goods as well. Is there any accurate CRM or anything like this that that, that can be used to plug into the back of their the back end CRM at, at the factory, whether it's in England or wherever it is in the world, to let them to let the brand know or the or the person if they're just a one person brand know exactly how much stock is in stock at their Chinese factory that's already been made. Is there any is there any way for them to monitor that other than like Excel spreadsheets or dumb 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 rubbish like that? I'm yeah. talking about. Is there any automated way that you know that can, that can be instilled in every brand today? So I, I use the software. So I, I first of all have like uh, the spreadsheets because 
I like to keep it simple as well, right? So in terms of like, I, I like to know where my goods all all at once. But I also have a software called like Navision by Microsoft, and that's very very detailed. It tells you where your goods are, whether it's um, in your home, in your factory, in Amazon, how many got returned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, how much you paid for them, your last order cost, how much you paid for shipment, where the goods exactly are in transit. And that's obviously quite an expensive software, but it doesn't need to be that complex. If you know that you've ordered like 12,000 units and you know that you've shipped out 3,000, you know you've got 9,000 in the factory, and then I would just sort of utilize that. to. It, that that does sound so simple, but I think a, 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 there's a lot that gets lost in translation. There's breakages, there's all this kind of stuff, and I think if you've got something that you can track it on, I think it's a portal, I think it'd be a lot easier. But I understand a basic spreadsheet is good. Mm-hmm. Do, do, you, do you notice that a lot of these... Brands don't even have the basic stuff in 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 like done in house. Yeah, so I, I would say like the success of your brand is done to the systems that you've built, right? And from it's all trial and error. Like when something happens, you learn from it, but then you put a system in place to make sure you don't make that mistake again, right? So um, the success or the failure of your brand is in terms of like the quality of your systems that you have for those particular products, and then the buyers that you hire, the merchandisers that you hire the relationships that you build with the factory. And then once you know exactly who you're working with, that's when you get to really utilize. Like, for example, we are product developers. We like to invent products, right? But our factories also export these products around the world to the Japanese market, to the Brazil market, to the Germany market, to the USA market. So they're developing products as well. So I quite often say to my manufacturers, hey, out of interest, you know, what's working in the Japan market? What's working in the Brazil market? And they're like, you know what? There's this Japanese customer who's developed this new tripod, but it's really, really light and it packs this way and it's never been done before. Um, are you interested in seeing it? And I'm saying that like they they don't want you to copy it because they don't want to damage the reputation if they have of that particular customer. And I would never want to copy someone else's product either. But I can get inspiration from it, and I can get information from it to then take into my next product. But no manufacturer would ever share that information with you as long as you have a good relationship with them. So that relationship also goes back to product development as well. And they 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 might develop new products themselves, and they might say, "Hey, by the way, we've just developed this new product." Do you want to be the first to market with it? Do you want to be the first to launch it? And they want to show it to you first <coughs> because you've obviously placed business with them before. You are their customer. So they know if you like it, you're going to order it, right? They can't just put that up on Amazon and, you know what I mean? Are a lot, do a lot of these Chinese factories have an innovation department that are innovating new products all the time? Or do they? Or is there some central part of China that's innovating and then all the factories get all these different innovations and just sell them off the shelf kind of thing. Yeah, I, I would say that if, if you went back like 12 or 13 years when I first went to China, it was just tell us what you want and we'll make it. Now it's like they are very good innovators, product developers. And I think the main driver of that is that their own market has established, meaning those factories were only doing export. They were only shipping out to the US, to the UK, to Europe. But now, as we talked about, like China has a really growth in, uh, big growth in their middle class. So now they have a market of 1 billion people in their own country, right? So they're like, let's develop and innovate products. And if you look at these like technology companies like Huawei and all that, which were taking on Apple and then Trump banned the sales of their products. So they, they started off by copying products, but now they're actually innovating and they're getting further ahead. And I would say that some, some, something fascinating that I noticed that living in Shanghai, the main shopping street is a uh, street called Huai Hai Lu. And like 12 years ago, you walk down that street, you see Roger Federer, LeBron James, all these guys, like, you know, your fashion models, all those guys, but they're all Western people because like the market aspired to be like those people. But I would say that now China are a much more proud nation and walking down that street now, I see that they have like Chinese athletes, Chinese influencers, Chinese models, and they're like, they're proud of their own country. So they're, um, 
their attention is going less towards export and now to satisfying their own market. And that's what can get dangerous because we saw during like COVID when there was a shortage of like chips for cars and chips for phones and stuff like that. It's like, well, in the US and Europe, we weren't capable of making that, but China can make that so they can satisfy their own market. But then the export market really suffered and prices started to go up and car prices went up. So that's the challenge. And I think people need to look inward to be like, now how can we innovate in our own country? How can how can this audience and the brand, the people that own brands listening to this, how can they go and take a piece of that middle class market in China and sell into that? Because that to me sounds like something that's growing at an astronomical rate, rather like the American market is a massive market too and, and the Indian market. How can they go and take a piece of that? I think you should only go after that market if you feel like you've plateaued in your own market because as it's simple as it sounds to go and sell in China, but everything that we know with like Google SEO and ads and optimization and tracking softwares and CRMs and email campaigns and all that sort of complicated stuff. Now you have to do that in a new market where you don't speak the language, where they've got a much larger customer pool, where it's much more competition and stuff like that. So it's very, very hard to succeed. But the brands which have gone to those markets and succeeded have been the ones that we talked about before, which have a really high defensible quality product with a great brand experience. And those stores come to you to be like, we want to sell this product in China. So, so essentially create the brand, make it make it a success in the UK, America, Australia, or wherever you're going to make it a success. And if it, if it passes the test where the Chinese want the product, they're, they're going to approach you to stock it in their stores anyway. Exactly. So, so don't go to them to try and get it. Build, make your brand as strong as possible and they'll come to you. And they'll come to you. What's, what other markets do you see as, as, as growing sourcing hubs? Is it just like Turkey, India? Where, where, where else is becoming like these places that a lot of people are sourcing products from? Yeah, Turkey, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar. But the most important thing when you look at these countries is to source the product from the country which specializes in the raw material of that product. So, for example, um, India are very strong for cotton, canvas, wood, handcraft, leather. So if you're making leather jackets or you're making a wooden bathroom table, whatever, go to India because that's what they specialize in. But if you're making like Bluetooth headphones, well, India aren't strong for electronics. So if you go there, they're not going to have the components needed for that product, right? And what's interesting is that Chinese, China know that the <coughs> cost of labor is cheaper in other neighboring Asian countries. So a lot of the Chinese factories have gone to countries like Myanmar and they've set up factories, set up production lines, taken their production line managers over, but hired local workers and training these guys how to make their products. So you can also ask your factories or do some research to be like what countries near China are Chinese run, Chinese operated, but can get lower cost products, right? And what was really interesting is that I was doing like, let's say, for example, sleeping bags, right, from an outdoor brand and went to another country like Myanmar, Bangladesh, something like that, because the lead times were so long coming out of China because of lockdowns and things like that. So then you get a slightly cheaper price, you get a good quality sample, all that. So you place your order to Myanmar and you're like, well, by the way, the goods are delayed. We're like, why? Because, um, because we can't get the zips. Like, why can't you get the zips? Oh, because we get the zips from China. So they say, like, you know, the raw material of steel is very, very hard to get at the moment. But then it's steel which makes the zips, which is the last sort of finishing piece on the sleeping bag. So even if you source your product from another country, do any of the accessories or materials come from China? And then if they do, well, you're better off just buying it from China anyway, right? So what, you, so what you're finding then is, like, even if you go and make, say you made a, a, a zippable top or a zippable hoodie in Turkey because the fabric's great in Turkey, the zip might be 
manufactured yeah. and designed in China. Yeah, and you could probably still get zip factories in Turkey, but if you're looking at the market leaders like YKK and stuff like that, they've got factories in China, right? So if you want the top quality zips, then they need to come from that particular area. The other factor I'd look at as well is the HTS import duty codes as well, right? So any... Break that down for me. Yeah. So so what, what does that mean? And break it down so they understand it fully. So HTS is a harmonized tariff schedule, and that's basically the import duty or the tariff or the tax you need to pay on a product when you import it, right? So if I buy um, a cotton t-shirt from China and import it to the UK. Uh, The UK government have decided that we're placing a 12% import duty rate on this particular t-shirt. So if I buy the the t-shirt for $10, I've got to pay $1.20 to the UK government. As Every one of them you land. Yeah, as basically like your your import tax, right? And your tax is calculated based on what's the tariff code that they've set. And they normally set those tariff rates based on protecting the domestic market, right? So if the UK, for example, wants to really develop its tyre industry, if you import tyres from China, the tariff they might put on it is 50% to deter you importing it to then protect the local infrastructure of that particular product, right? But what's really important is that if we're looking at countries outside of China, every country has got a different import duty rate, right? So... India and Pakistan is part of the Commonwealth countries, right? And there's no import duty as part of the Commonwealth. So if you import a T-shirt from China, you'll pay 12%. But if you import a T-shirt from India, you'll pay 0%. So if I can get the same quality and the same price from India and I can from China, I'll save 12, 12% by bringing it in from India. Plus the transit time, the shipping time and the shipping cost will be a little bit less because India is closer to the UK than China. So quite often that even if you get the exact same product quality and price, you can actually save quite a lot just by the country that you've sourced it from based on their proximity to your country, as well as what's the import duty rate. And a classic example, like anyone importing into the US, like Trump had his Trump tariffs, right? I think in September 2018, he imposed 25% tariff on a lot of Chinese goods as a penalty for China, US political wars, whatever it may be, right? So I was um, importing these these backpacks, right? Making them in China, selling them in, in the UK. And the UK import duty rate on a backpack is 2.7%. And in the States, it was 17%. And then Trump added the 25% tariff. To the 17%? Yeah, so it went up to 42%. So now if I bring in the same backpack from China to the US, it's 42%. And if I bring it China to the UK, it's 2.7%. So that's something important to look at, that if you're a brand selling a product in the US, you're like, well, rather than re-engineer the product, bring the cost down, well, what new markets can I open up? Why don't I just sell this bag in the in the UK now and I can save 40% on my cost of goods by now launching it in a new market? So it's the same English-speaking market, right? I don't need to change anything on my packaging, on my copywriting, on my testing. I just need to send the products to a different country and I've saved 40%. So the import duty rate is actually really important to look at as well. And it's actually like a very boring topic but it's an important topic because this is where you can save quite a lot and i go into a lot of detail in this uh, in my youtube channel uh, sourcing of kian and it, what's funny is that the hts code i was like i need to make an episode on this but it's such a boring topic that i don't think people are going to tune into it so i got a bottle of tequila and i was like every time i say the word hts i want to take a shot of tequila so as i'm explaining how to get cheaper products through tariffs on your products i'm just taking shots of tequila to keep it, to keep it interesting, keep yeah, it no, interesting. It, it is boring, and and some people might find this and this you know certain parts is boring, but like it's, it's like if it's important that if you're trying to if you want to go from being a plumber to someone who's selling products online, this yeah. is shit you need to know. Like yeah. you you need to know this. You know what's really interesting as well is that like you know like during COVID the shipping rates went up to like twenty thousand dollars container and stuff like that, and everyone's like, what do we do? But I was like, you know what, like if 
uh, price of the product, price of the raw material, price of shipping, it's gone up to you. It's also happened to your competition as well. So rather than saying like, why has this happened to me? What are the areas of our supply chain can we look at and where can we save those one or two percent, right? So we just talked about saving 12% from our HTS code, right? Cool, that's 12% there. We can hold goods in our supplier's warehouse so we can uh, mass produce in bulk one year at a time rather than doing four or five orders over the course of the year. So we've saved a few percent there as well. Are we optimizing our carton dimensions where we can get the most amount of units in a carton that's stackable on a pallet that goes to the maximum height in our warehouse? Cool. Now we've got the most amount of units on a pallet, so our storage cost per unit has now come down. So you have to look at all these areas in your supply chain, kind of like the Sky Cycling team, right? They're like, where can I improve 1% or 2% in every aspect of our cycling journey? And they did that in the one the Tour de France. And it's like, I look at the same in the supply chain. I'm like, where can I save one or 2% in five or six or 10 different areas? And I can bring my product cost down 10% compared to the competition. Yeah, no, I, f- I fully resonate with that because it is it's so, so crucial because I was speaking to Matt who has space goods and he was, he's warehousing his product in Ireland because of some loophole which allows him to ship it to Europe without a certain tariff or tax on it. Whereas if he had put it into, into the Dutch Dutch 3PL, yeah. at the time, he was going to get smacked with another percentage on top. I don't know if you can talk into that. That, that was more around like the, the import duty and uh, yeah. bond-free warehouses and stuff like that, free trade zones and things like that. But I think that's specific to the markets that you're selling in and things like that. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area. I just like to stick to, um, to the actual product development and supply chain. And uh, So, so when, you, when you're a sourcer like you, you, you're not really worried about where you source the product from so you're not really bothered whether you source it from turkey whether you source it from india source it from china source it from bangladesh you're not really bothered about that you just go okay you just look at the specification of what the the client wants um and everything like that and then you just source it in 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 whatever regard fits fits the criteria basically and that's the way that you're encouraging everyone that listens to this look at the criteria and then source it from the country that best fits the criteria but always pivotally think are any of those components that are within that criteria even though they are the best at that fabric for my sake if the zip comes from china be aware that there may be lead time problems with that product because the zip comes from china and if it's over chinese new year yeah. you have to allow for that yeah yeah yeah. am i picking that up right 100 yeah, percent. but the good thing is I, I think anyone listening to this might be a little bit like oh this sounds like a lot of work and how do i figure out what country specializes in this product and a quick hack quick uh, tip for these guys is that there's an amazing website called import yeti.com uh, y-e-t-i import yeti.com it's completely free and what it does is it scrapes the any product which is in a container that container has what's called the bill of lading document right the bill of lading document says the import duty code what the product is where it came from what factory it came from where it came from where it's going and that's what customs basically use to figure out who owns the container whoever owns that document owns the container they release it to you and then you sell it anyway only in america for some reason that bill of lading document is public information so what Import Yeti did is that they scraped all of the bill of lading documents to find out where all these goods from all these brands, from which factories they came from, which import duty rate they came from, from which country they came from. So anyone listening, if you go to importyeti.com, you type in a brand that you like, you could type in Gymshark, the North Face, Nike, any of these brands. Find all their factories. Exactly. So I, I, North Face is a good one because they have like multiple products, right? So you type in the North Face and it'll bring up the company. It'll tell you they've got 17,000 shipments over the last few years. It'll tell you by month how many shipments they did. And then you can see all their suppliers for the products. So it'll tell you men's jacket, men's footwear, women's bandana. And it'll tell you 
what code they imported it at, what country they came from, what factory they came from. And then you can click on the factory. Let's say we find the factory which makes the North Face backpacks. I can click on that factory. I can see they're in Vietnam or Bangladesh. And then I can see what other um, brands that they export for. And I can see Patagonia, Adidas, Vans, maybe, and all these other brands. I'm like, well, cool. These are brands that align with me. And then I can just see, and I can find your contact information and write to them directly. So, what that does is it validates what's the correct code you should be importing it at. It tells you what country the biggest brands are manufacturing from, and it also gives you the factory information. And we kind of talked at the start of the show of, you know, why would these big factories want to work with me? They already manufacture for like North Face and Nike and all these guys. But it was all about crafting a message that builds leverage, why they should want to work with you, because you have the influence, because you have new ideas, because you have a brand page. And let's say, for example, you've sold on Amazon. We've sold a completely different product, but you achieved a million dollars in sales. We'll send a screenshot of your sales to be like, this is what I'm capable of selling in my previous brand. This is a new brand I want to launch and I want to work with you. And they're like, get excited by those sales. So that's how you find. It's uh, all about, it's all about future pacing the arrangement to make sure that the arrangement is a mutually beneficial one that benefits them as a factory and you're treating them like humans and then obviously benefits you on the back end as well. It's yeah. as simple as that. And like you say, the way that you've just broke down with, with the, the, what was the website again? import yeti import yeti.com the way the way you've broke down with import yeti and how you can basically say look if you want to make this type of t-shirt what brands sell that type of t-shirt and then you go and search that type of t-shirt and then you see if they're all making them in bangladesh you wouldn't go and start making it in india thinking you're a genius because at the end of the day why are they making it in bangladesh because bangladesh has got the best fabric has got the best infrastructure for making that tech t-shirt or something like that whatever, whatever they're using so I think that stops people reinventing the wheels thinking they're great. Because obviously, me, my experience, early e-com days, I've had a dropshipping brand since, but um, early e-com days, I, I, I just bought these teeth whitening kits. Dumb idea. Don't do that. If you if you stick to that, I think, you, I think you'll be fine. But, but mate, what, what a journey you've had. If there's, if there's one final piece of wisdom and advice if you had to check out you couldn't give no more wisdom and advice and guidance on this anymore like you you're out you you you, you're done if there's one piece of advice you'd give this audience that will empower them to make more money and take them further in everything that they do what would that piece of advice be from you my man we we talked about building those relationships right yeah Um, so i think if you've listened to this episode and you got this far and the biggest takeaway you can take is I would say find your manufacturers, WeChat, contact them, send them a selfie of yourself, say, hey, say what's up, make a little video for them, start to develop that personal relationship. If you're selling any product and you do not have a specification sheet, make that specification sheet right now because you do not know if you've been getting the best price for your product or you don't know if you've been overpaying or underpaying or you don't know if you've been getting the best factory. So it starts from that specification sheet. Make that specification sheet check out, find the top five suppliers on alibaba.com, reach out to them. But I'm not um, telling anyone to go and switch their supplier because they now got 20 cents cheaper off their manufacturer. But find what's the market price for your product. And if you get lower than what you're paying right now, give your manufacturer the opportunity to match that price. So you can say, by the way, just so you know, I've been paying $7.20 for these umbrellas that I've been buying from you for five years. But um, I've had other manufacturers reach out to me, which is normal because manufacturers will find that product online on Amazon. They'll buy a sample, they'll make it, they'll send it to you and be like, hey, by the way, we'll sell this to you for six fifty. So, So by the way, just so you know, I've loved working for you. Everything's been great. Uh, but I've had other suppliers contact me and they're offering me $6.50 for the product I pay seven twenty to you for. 
if you can match the price, then we can continue to do the business together. And you know that they're able to hit that price because you've reached out to the top manufacturers and they're giving you that price. And in that way, they'll be like, yeah, okay, cool, no worries, we're going to match the price. And in that way, you have the manufacturer that you're happy with, that you've always been working with, and you've also got the best price on the market. But it started from having that specification sheet. I love it, mate. I love it. Thank you so much for dropping that value today. Guys, do me a solid favor. Yeah? I've just brought you an absolute banger on sourcing the best products and the best prices and everything else, all that, all the information I could. There's more information than this than there is in most courses. Let me tell you straight. Do me a solid favor. Yeah? Subscribe on all the platforms and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Subscribe to mine. Do share this with all your mates, put it in the WhatsApp groups. I appreciate you on every level. You can obviously tell how passionate I am about bringing this content to your ears week in, week out, doing the reps in the trenches. I appreciate every single one of you that listens. And from us two, we're off to Nando's. Much love. Guys, do me a solid favor. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next. <laughs>